Welcome to All The Things, a podcast for moms seeking an inspired life. Hi, I'm your host, Lisa Chin. I am a writer and a coach, and my most passionate truth is that the world needs the real you. That's why I created this podcast, to discover all the things that make us who we are, because the better we understand ourselves, the more good we can do in the world. So let's do that together. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode with my guest, Rafael Pastor. Um, funny story, I met Rafael less than a week ago. <laughs> and, um, and it's funny how we just meet people along the way and interesting people along the way. And I'm very thankful I have a podcast where I'm like, now I can pull you in and I can have a conversation with you. So, Rafael, thanks for being here. Oh, I'm very happy to be here, actually. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so before we get started, I want to first acknowledge that I am speaking and podcasting on unceded and traditional territories of the Nipmuc and Massachusetts people. And I share a land acknowledgement before every podcast episode. When I first started this podcast, it was something that I knew I had to do. Um, and today we're going to be talking so much about like social justice and and being human, right, in this world. And I think that part of my journey in this work has been finding as many opportunities as I can to, like, practice and to do the work. Um, and my, my friend has been saying, like, the word work isn't necessarily right because it's, like, work is so traditional. Like, you're paid for it, and this is just, this is the thing we need to do to kind of increase humanity in this world, right? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> To give the listener a quick intro, um, I'll just share a little bit about you, and then we can kind of jump into the conversation. Rafael is a former LGBTQ campaign organizer, and he has witnessed the power of community, starting as a presidential campaign volunteer and eventually working with the New Jersey Campaign for same-sex marriage and national campaign for employment non-discrimination. Rafael empowers people to create change in their world through advocacy. Raphael's greatest joy is leading people to actualize their power and work toward their highest contribution. It makes me more all like warm and fuzzy inside when I read that. That's <laughs> definitely my favorite thing. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this season is about unlearning, and I kind of gave you a heads up about that when we were talking. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that word and like and how and maybe how it relates to your work or maybe what you're unlearning at this moment. Yeah. Um, unlearning for me kind of definitely becomes a situation where um, we've come to a place in our life where we realize, oh, wait, this thing no longer serves me. This idea, this practice, this way of being no longer is in the best interest of my highest self, my best self. So unlearning is a lot of unpacking and sometimes it's heavy and sometimes it's it feels like it can't be unbroken um and it's it's really trying to recognize that so it dissolves that kind of heavy lifting and becomes more expansive and more open to the new possibilities or the new way of thinking or doing um, in our own lives that feels right for right now because sometimes you know through life you know, your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, et cetera, um, you know, what's right right now may not be right 
15 years from now, 20 years from now, just like if it wasn't right 10 years prior, you know, 15 years prior. So I think a lot of unlearning is doing that unpacking and, and recognizing, oh, wait, I can't carry this around any longer. Mm, that's so beautifully stated. Okay. <laughs> and so just to share with the listener how we met, I was at my cousin's wedding this past weekend and I was getting, I had to get hair and makeup done because I was part of the bridal party and Raphael was my makeup person. So, yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because I, I, you know, I had my hair done at eight and then we, I kind of like heard your voice, but I wasn't facing you. So I don't even think I remember what you looked like. And then I like ran late to my makeup appointment and then we're just chatting. And then all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, what do you do? Like, you know, and, and it's so interesting that you have done like this work that I don't know much about, like politics is not, you know, it's not something I grew up with. And, and also I think that I, with that, it's it's hard for me to, like, imagine how in in this country, you know, they say, like, you know, every vote matters and all of that. Um, but it's mm-hmm. also hard to imagine when, you know, like, the way that voting works and stuff like that. Like, it was just like, I was like, I have to have you on because <laughs> I don't know how this yes. all works. And I think that you're, yeah, you've been on the ground, right? Yeah, I've been on the ground. Um, but I've also done some different types of advocacy work. Um and both professional and non-professional, um, because I am a campaign, you know, I've been a campaign organizer and I've also been a community organizer and those are kind of shared um, philosophies of activism, but they are, are different in the way that they operate. Um, so campaigns generally have a goal. Um, we're definitely trying to get a particular piece of legislation or a particular issue um you know, engaged by voters and engaged by um, Congress people and uh, senators. Um, so we're trying to get eyes onto a particular piece of legislation where community organizing can really start by what the needs of that particular community are. Um, so they, they do have um, different, different operative ideas and philosophies behind them because, you know, one is definitely full speed ahead. We have, you know, X number of weeks, months, years to get this legislation passed and community organizing is a little bit low and slow. It kind of has this idea of really seeing what the particular needs of a community that aren't being met um, and how to really engage those community members in um, kind of figuring out um, with each other and alongside each other what could be some of the strategies or even just some of the ways of being that can alter some of the ways that we engage with each other. So in LGBTQ campaigning, um, especially when it came to, let's say, same-sex marriage or employment non-discrimination federally, um, because, you know, I live in the state of New Jersey, um, those particular protections were already a part of my state, but federally we didn't have protections until about June 2020, in which sexual orientation was also federally protected in the workplace. Um, So a lot of that particular work was very you know, long, <laughs> um, you know, I worked for a campaign um, that, you know, was Americans for Workplace Opportunity, and it's a very broad kind of idea. We wanted to give people the dignity of work, um, regardless of sexual orientation, and we, you know, especially when marriage federally passed, but those workplace protections weren't necessarily in place. So you had some kind of disjointed experiences among LGBTQ people where, you know, they would experience a wedding and then go 
to work and maybe those workplaces didn't have protections for them and that would you know result in people losing their jobs or um, being shifted into different roles um, based on those uh, you know workplace politics essentially activism in and of, in and of itself is really varied um, there's a, a lot of ways to be an activist in, in the name it's inherent, right, your, your real primary goal is to get people to act, is to activate them in ways that engage not just with their communities, but really get behind reaching out to their uh, elected officials to make their voices heard so that those particular pieces of legislation can, can pass. And sometimes it's to be heard to stop a particular piece of legislation, and then uh, and sometimes it's a, it's a, a calling to uh, pass a particular piece of legislation. So in particular, in New Jersey, it was to have, you know, same-sex marriage be upheld, uh, upheld rather, in a way that felt um, good to the citizens of New Jersey, right? Um, federally, however, that can look a lot different. You know, that looks differently um, based on states. So, for instance, when you do something that's more federal, um, each particular uh, elected official that is going to vote in, in favor of that, that's where you're really putting your energy to. So a lot of activism is engaging in conversations with what we conceive of the political aisle on the other side. So it's not necessarily just finding your tribe and kind of amplifying um, your your community's voice, it's really about engaging in those difficult conversations with people who may not agree fully with where you're coming from um, and really just want some more either information or more storytelling around people's experiences to move their their attitude in a particular direction. That point about engaging kind of across or on the other side of the aisle, I feel like mm -hmm. that and again, this is this is my view of with very little context or history or whatnot, a uh, knowledge that uh, that you have um, engaging with the other side, you know, quote unquote, it feels like it's so hard to do nowadays. So, like, how do you actually do that? Because like you said, like in order in order to make change, you do need to help other people understand like what your goals are. Yeah, um, I think a, a lot of getting um, kind of conversations started around people who don't see the world fully as you do or come from a place of understanding where you're coming from, that's a really, you know, it's a big process. And it doesn't necessarily always have to be hard or difficult. It just, it, there's, there's a lot to get through. Um, a lot of the times people think more information helps. Um, I'm of the idea that actually storytelling helps more engagement in the idea that like if we can find common ground in the things that we think we disagree, you know, intensely about, that common ground can you can often lead to a place where we can agree in the big in the big stuff, right? We want. For instance, in workplace protection, we want people to have the dignity of work. We want people to work and, and be able to continue to provide for their families and for their own well-being. So that's a really good place to start. Um, a really good place to start is, like, what are my workplace experiences as, uh, you know, a gay man who, you know, work can feel, you know, tenuous sometimes, and navigating work can feel tenuous sometimes. There's, you know, I became a makeup artist in a lot of ways 
in the early 2000s as a way to put myself in a place where I felt safe at work, where I felt really empowered to be myself at work and to fully engage in that. Whereas like some people may say, oh, well, there's a natural tendency for, for makeup to be part of a gamer's life. And I don't think that's necessarily true in my, in my own experience. I think for me, it was a really good um, place, one, because I'm a creative person. I enjoyed actually doing makeup. But the real, the real thing that I love to do in makeup is making people feel great and also having the conversations that you and I had during the, the time that I was doing makeup. That's when I feel most engaged in what I'm doing. The makeup is, is, is actually secondary to what my real work is, which is engagement and allowing people to feel really great to celebrate something to, let's say, if they were doing headshots or, you know, for their work to feel really empowered so they can present themselves in a way that they feel really confident. So that, that feeling part is the, the part that drove my, my love of being a makeup artist. It wasn't necessarily just the makeup. I think that, that really, truly, for me, was secondary to, to, to my job um, and to my career as a makeup artist. And also having, you know, a really wayward path in, in, a, in a positive sense. I don't see those things as negative. I've had a really varied work life um, allows me to see things with different lenses. I don't necessarily have one way of seeing the world and one way of seeing my work um, because as an activist, being a makeup artist actually made me a better activist. I'm used to listening to people. I'm, I'm used to engaging people where they may have very little information. Like I don't even know what this eyeliner is, where this is supposed to go. Um, and walking people into something, you know, that we think of as simple as eyeliner is is very much tied to how do I call my congressperson? How, what do I say? Like, how do I engage with my community um, to, to give their precious time to this cause? Those are related things. Those are not necessarily completely disjointed ideas. Um, so that was a really big part of, like, later in my life, putting those and gelling those pieces together because for a long time I thought they were separate. You know, I had to learn that those parts of my life were not, you know, fractured pieces of me, but rather a part of the whole me that, like, I bring to my work and also to my engagement with uh, different communities. I just, I, I love that kind of understanding. And I also did want to point out, like, that idea of, like, feeling safe at work. It's like, I, I don't know if I've personally have felt that way. I mean, I've, I've had moments where I felt like people are saying the wrong things. But I've never felt like oh, my yeah. <laughs> my tenure was ever tenure or whatever the my my contract or whatever it may be was ever at risk because of who I am. Yeah, I mean, for a lot of people, that was their experience. Um, you know, you know, a lot of states again had marriage but didn't have those workplace protections. And how do you navigate those things? And also, too, because I've had their, their various work experiences, when you know a large part of my work um, has shifted from sometimes being in really diverse spaces and then not diverse spaces. And that, that, that juxtaposition I felt, even if it was my own perspective, bore realities that I felt different in those spaces. And I didn't necessarily feel fully prepared to share aspects of my life because it was unspoken that they would not be celebrated here. I, I'm not a big tolerance person, an acceptance person. I, I'm a 
respiratory person. Like I want people and their differences to be celebrated because those unique individual qualities are what what we're talking about when we talk about diversity and inclusion, right? When we talk about inclusivity, it's like, okay, yeah, this person may have a seat at the table, but they are, are they allowed to speak here? Is, is their voice, does their voice carry weight here? Um, are we actually specifically making a space available for their contributions? That's where inclusion really matters. And I think we're starting to have those conversations more and more post-pandemic because they're necessary. I don't think we, there's ever going to be a, a way backwards. I think we can only really move forward from this place where those different experiences have to be valued and and not only valued in a you know lip service way, but valued in an institutional systemic way that like allows for the for people's voices to be heard at work and also in school. I mean those things are, are really two major institutions that a lot of my work revolves around um, that that diversity and inclusion are are pillars. They're pretty hollow pillars sometimes. I don't I don't know if they're fully fully formed um, actions versus ideas. So how how do you think like the pandemic has shifted this? The pandemic has shifted the way we think of collaboration uh, uh, and autonomy and responsibility. I think a lot of people feared in the beginning of the pandemic that especially in corporate environments that people would not work. Because, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the world around them was pretty uncertain, right? And I think that uncertainty causes us to kind of revert back to, like, the the most suspicious parts of ourselves um, that allows people to, to think instead of be generous with it, with how we, what we believe about people, to actually pull back and say, no, like, we have to, you know, really surveil and like be on top of people and I think the pandemic bore that that's just not entirely accurate all the time I think people have a sense of earnest responsibility when it comes to their work um, that they want to contribute I think that's the thing that people forget at work is that contribution is a big part of of motivation at work right we talk a lot about um, I, I grew up in you know I, I'm sandwiched between two generations in which you know the pretty traditional nine to five, you're working in a cubicle space and that kind of free Google Pixar space, right? <laughs> like this kind of open concept and like, you know, closed off box are kind of like the, the extremes on those ends. And I'm also not a big fan of like those poles. I'm not a, a big fan of extremes. I don't think one works particularly better than the other. Um, I think there's a lot of space in between that we can have, you know, some real solid ground. I think that there's, you know, some some real space for, okay, what works here and what works here, what can we bring to that? Because I think people do enjoy some structure. I think the pandemic also kind of reinforced that people do need and, and want structure to a degree, but they don't want to be surveilled. They don't want, they want some autonomy in how their work-life balance, um, it really transpires in real life. Um, and that's a big part of what I think, the, how the world of work has changed in, in my own experience, but, you know, having a lot of conversations over the past two years with people who don't have work experiences like mine, you know, I do have a lot of autonomy as, you know, someone who, who works essentially whenever they, you know, desire to, but also 
because you work when you desire to, you have to really be really conscious about how much you work and when you work in order to make sure that you're, you know, financially stable. Um, so, you know, that freedom comes at a, a self, you know, an entrepreneurial um, feeling in your bones. It doesn't just come from, I'm going to work whenever I want to. It, it really comes from being entrepreneurial and being like, I have to work X number of hours. I have to have this many clients this week. Um, in the same way that organizing is. Organizing is really autonomous. There's, there's things you must do, right? There's numbers you have to hit in terms of how people um, interact with um, communities and interact with uh, elected officials. So, but you are responsible for making that work. And a lot of that is self-motivated. Um, so you really have to be you know, invested in what you're doing, but also be really, really conscious that you don't burn out because that doesn't serve anyone. <laughs> totally right. You you said that you're kind of sandwiched in between generations, and I guess I am too. <laughs> I hadn't thought, hadn't thought about it. Yeah. Technically, I don't think we're part of the sandwich generation, but right. we are. Like Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's hard because I, I, I think, you know, I think I... I'm supposed to fit into the older millennial. You know, I was born, you know, in the early 80s. <laughs> so for me, that can, that, it, it, you know, people want to, you know, put me in that kind of older millennial, but I don't necessarily feel that way because I didn't necessarily go up with technology and, and the use of technology in the same way. Like, I am in no way super technologically savvy. I think I, I was, you know, I'm the son of educators and um, who you know, really, really were, for the no use of a better word, old school about the way that they engaged with people. And technology was not necessarily seen as, like, the way to engage people, face-to-face -face interaction and that kind of traditional, you, you talk to people, you look at them, you engage with them. If they're talking to you, was really, really central to how I was raised and, and my upbringing, um, which is why I'm, you know, can be really social. Um, and why I'm, I'm, I feel comfortable speaking to people, um, which is a really useful, useful tool when you want to be an activist, or when you, you know, are you know, position yourself at work where you have to talk often. You know, I, I talk a lot at work, <laughs> um, but that's it's difficult because I don't necessarily engage in social media in the same way that like activists I've worked with have, and they engage in social media in ways that I, you know, have learned from them, um, but definitely don't engage in that same way because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel fully engaging to me um, in the way that, like, activism online works. Do you think that um, you will, like, is that something you would, like, want to learn, or do you feel like what you're doing yeah. like works and you would continue doing it that way. Oh no. Oh, for sure. Like if I, if I could learn one, one useful, useful tool, it is the engagement of social media and, or even just technology in general, when it comes to activism and even education, I, you know, I want to work in higher education. I don't think higher education is going backwards. I, I really do feel like digital learning is, is going to be a really big part. And it has been a really big part of, of higher education. Um, so it's not going away. It's only going to hopefully get better and, and more integrated and feel more collaborative. I think as a college student now, going back to school as an adult, um, 
I was really, really nervous about how technology would influence my education because I'm so used to in-person education and it's actually where I thrive. Um, that interaction, I really learn best when I'm around other people and I get to, you know, kind of volley ideas back and forth. Um, and it didn't feel super fluid and natural online at first. Um, it really took a, a quite a bit of time to, to acclimate to that kind of um, and, you know, am I talking? Can I hear you? Um, is that what you said? Is that what I'm hearing? Like, there's a lot of um, what feels as, like, catching up, <laughs> which would not necessarily happen in, in person. Um, so there's a lot of, of that that is, you know, a part of, you know, learning to be social. And also social media and engagement can be a really tricky place um, for activists' work or for finding information uh, regarding politics online. I think that's a, I think that has become really central to the reporting of really credentialed journalists is that misinformation and you know some really um, the average person really terrifying things <laughs> that are readily available for them to engage with, um, which I you know would wish certain social media platforms would be better about, and I think you know, hopefully they will be, um, but I can't, count, you know, that's not something we can all count on. And social media is like, I mean, talk about like where things are politicized and where there's really extremes, right? That is, right. That, that's where it happens. I mean, I feel like, you know, people take off whatever masks they're wearing or maybe they're putting on masks, but something's happening where they, once they get behind the keyboard or the phone, it's like, they the the dialogue becomes not even a dialogue it's just it becomes right. like very heavy you know like very it's negative real. and all of that stuff um how does one yeah. actually make change in an environment like that um i think it's it's really important to and i you know have had successes and failures engaging online i think in general when it comes to like uh, political or uh, advocacy or activism online it's really important for people to, I think people really love certainty. But the pandemic has taught me nothing is certainty. It's, 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 not, it's something you really just cannot count on, right? Um, we really want to be right, and we really want to be certain about what we believe. Um, and to an extent, you know, there are, you know, places where we, we would like some certainty in, in terms of dignity and respect. I think those are kind of like blanket really core, you know, civil bedrocks that we want to have happen in conversations online. Um, online, I don't know if that's an environment in which those things can be assumed, which, you know, really is tough. Um, I think in general that certainty drives people's animosity and vitriolic responses because again the position is I want to be right but not only want to be right but I want to drown you in my knowledge and drown you in um, data and that that doesn't move needles very often I don't I don't think that moves people closer to you I think it's a really big driver of disconnecting you to the person you're talking to because it, it feels like you're lecturing or preaching instead of trying to connect with someone on a human level. Um, I think that's a, a really big part of political discourse online or political conversations online is we really feel the person has 
on the other end is a moral failure in in relation to us because we're doing something morally outstanding and you are just like we really divide people into like kind of angels and demons online i really i and leave very little room for legitimate debate i think for me i always see policies as debatable and dignity is not debatable like that is that's not you know you really want to make sure that you're online that's, that looks different, but physically and psychologically safe in the sense that like, hopefully you don't, you are injured by another person, but you also really, do, it's really important to engage on some of the things that there are no, there's no certainty around. Um, people, even with science, right? My, my father's a science educator. And to a degree, like science is exploration, it is not a, always a definitive answer. We don't have definitive answers. And leaving room for that mystery is something we don't necessarily teach people, nor do we remind each other in conversations that there's room for unknown and non-definitive answers for. Um, even in, 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 in political spaces where we wanted to write by people, uh, we just may disagree on the policy, might disagree on like the strategies to get to a place. And people see that as like moral failing, see that as like, you are wrong, you are amoral because your policy doesn't match my policy um, preference here or, or idea here. Um, so that becomes really strenuous for online to be. And I don't think to, to what extent that that's possible, people would really have to engage humanly in a space that really makes it difficult to be fully human on because it's really easy when you're not sitting across and feeling someone's energy to like stop <laughs> and, 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 and pause and maybe take a breath and maybe like, wow, like I actually do agree with you here and here, but my experience is different here. Um, do you want to talk about how my, those experiences allow me to see things differently, that, that's really difficult to do online, I think. Yeah, that requires almost like a space, you know, like that physical oh. space, but also just the space to think and to dialogue versus just hitting send and, and whatever it is <laughs> and throwing that data like you were saying at them. Oh. I'd love to hear an example with the work that you've done, like how you were able to talk to someone who didn't understand your viewpoints and like how that dialogue looks, because I don't think a lot of us have that experience of, of, I don't want to say changing someone, but really just sharing with someone where you're coming from and having them understand that. Yeah. Um, uh, I was canvassing one day and I think, um, there was a general, like a, a, person who I was uh, trying to talk to on their, on their front lawn and they were literally like mowing their grass. And for them, it really was a situation where the idea of same-sex marriage was like something they politically thought was fine, but then was also a threat to families. Um, I actually um, have a, a gay sibling. <laughs> so for me, it was that my opportunity to kind of reach into my own personal experience and say, hey, like, I totally get that 
and this is also about families. For me, this is this is my family. Um, and to think that like uh, my sibling wouldn't have the dignity of marriage, wouldn't have the ability to create their own family, is also something I don't want taken away from their experience in their life. Um, you know, and although we may not have come, we didn't arrive at a place where we both fully agreed, I, I, there was a sense and there was an idea instead of, you know, coming back and yelling at me, like, you know, get off my lawn, there was a sense of like, oh, I never considered that this could be about family, <laughs> that this was someone else's different idea of family, what family could look like for other people. Um, and moments like that are really important because, again, that storytelling, that kind of, we may not even arrive at an, a place of agreement, and I don't think that's the point. The point sometimes is, do you see me as human enough to see that my version of family just may be different than yours, and it deserves that same legal respect and dignity that yours does? Um, and I think that's, that's where we want to get to, uh, you know, a big big struggle in the beginning of my activist work was getting to people to see things the way I saw them, arrive at a place where we both felt like, okay, well, I was right. And, you know, that's not part of my, my approach any longer. I think one that led to a lot of anger and a lot of, and a lot of just feeling defeated every time I would come back home from work, um, because there's a lot that I, you hear on a daily basis. A lot. There's a lot of things that, like, I, you know, I wish I could forget hearing and experiencing. Um, but that's not for me. That's not, you know, I was lucky to work for an organization that debriefed every day at the end of the day to kind of just unload some of the things that we would hear and be able to support each other in the idea to continue our work and understand that, like, even though you may have been called exler or, like, why things happen to you, you may have been chased by, you know, someone with a Bible, like there are, there are ideas that, that there is a light at the end of this. And that's the goal. The goal is for my, my younger cousins, my younger, you know, younger students around me to have the things that I want them to have that I, I didn't have until I was 30. <laughs> um, or, you know, I've, there's something bigger here, and that's what I have to keep in mind. And not everyone is going to agree, and that's 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 part of the work. The part of the work is to move the people who are closer to agreeing to agree <laughs> um, through humanizing people and stories and legislation. Legislation can look really dense and is jargon-ridden and is largely you know academic and policy like in nature and to humanize those stories to humanize family to humanize um the celebration of something like marriage or the humanized work is the is the goal <laughs> even in community organizing things that may look one way on the surface i used to co-facilitate uh, a group in which we would talk about things as as you know, innocuous is like, but as important as online dating um, among queer and gay men, like, what does that look like um, for us? We all came with different ideas of what um, that could look like, but that doesn't necessarily mean that no one's wrong or right. 
is does this serve you? Are you getting what you want at the end of the use of this app? <laughs> are you are you engaged with the people that you're talking to on the other end of the of the phone and uh, on the other end of that app? And it, if you aren't, then maybe we need to think about that differently. If you are, then that's a really good sign. You're now getting a taste of or an idea of like more, the things you want more of. And that's a lot of activism. And that's a lot of the difficult conversations. It's not so much you're wrong, we're right. It's, is, is, does this feel good for you? Is this something that works for you in your life? Is this something even that you value? Are your values being met here? Um, and sometimes that's where everything starts. I think value conversations, the, I think the idea that like, oh, wait, I thought this was really important, but actually, you know, I value this thing more. This, this thing supersedes that thing I thought mattered to me. And now I can realign what I'm doing to meet this value because I'm committed to, to that idea, to that, to that belief. As I'm, I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm realizing there's, you know, every, my, my like theory or whatever, like what I always think is everyone thinks that like everyone wants to be on the right side of history. And so, and I feel like, especially when we're trying to do good, there's a lot, there can be a lot mm. of ego in there. And, and ego, not just in the way of, oh, like I'm the best, but ego as in I'm better than you and ego as in I need to do this right. And when Mm -hmm. you were saying like, you're not, you're not there to change someone's mind. It's like, I don't think that any of us can put that pressure on ourselves. That's ego saying like, you have to change this person's mind because my worldview was not changed or created or influenced by just one person. It was created over a lifetime by many people. So the more that we can expose someone to a different idea and kind of chip away at it versus like, I'm going to be louder and throw more data at you and, and change your mind because I'm going to be the loudest. Um, And so that just makes me like realize, okay, this is, this is very much part of a journey. It's not like a, you go in and you, you do the job and then you turn around and like, and you know you're done, and you whatever put your coat over your shoulder and walk away. <laughs> um, so thank you for saying that because it it makes me think like that is truly it's it really can't be just one person, and it can't and you and you can't be just one person either. Um, when you talked about the work that you know you want to do in education, I really want to dive into that because it's just evolving, right? It, it was different when, you know, 20 years ago to 40 years ago to, um, and I think that was one of the first things you told me when I met you, where you were like, oh, I'm, I'm studying and I'm going to get the words wrong. So I won't put the words yeah. in your mouth. I'll let, have you explain, but I'd love to right. hear kind of your standpoint of how education kind of falls into this whole thing and how you're working with it. Right. Um, so if I were to, you know, put my dreams all out there, um, which, you know, to, to hold myself accountable for them. Um, I do want to work in higher education. I think it took me a really long time to get to that place. So to put more context, when I was an organizer, I was a campus organizer. So the, lar- the largest part of my work was working with college students who wanted to be part of the movements in which I was working toward. Um, it was the most profound, I, I can't even, the words really don't do it justice. It's the most profound experience of my life working with college students because it is when they're starting, they're, the first inklings of, of 
independence and their own thought and kind of taking a step away from just the, the families of origin that they came from or, fa- you know, their chosen families. And, and now they're starting to develop who they are as people. And now they're starting to question and unlearn some of the things that they learned growing up. Probably they are absolutely the most genius, the most um, hardworking when it comes to access because they do care. This generation cares so much about equity instead of just equality. They really want people who have less to have more, not at the expense of any other person, but to just be able to live life in an equitable way and with the respect and dignity that they that everyone deserves. And I think that that's something unique about this particular generation of students. Um, and with that kind of experience, why it took me so long is because, you know, generally when, you, when you're a student and you study education, it generally is one track, you're going to become a teacher, right? And you're either going to become a teacher in elementary school or secondary school, and that's, that's kind of where that ends. For some people, obviously, they, they go on to grad school and go on to get their PhD and then enter academia as, you know, a TA and a professor and things like that. There are so many other aspects to education that aren't necessarily part of the education system. The development of uh, professionals in education is 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 in a better place now than when I started college out of high school. You know, it's been about 21 years since then. Um, but the idea is that there, there are now options. And when I could connect those things together, so it's been a journey because, you know, certain options weren't available then. And I said to myself, oh, I could work in higher education. I can work in towards equity and inclusion in professorship, or I could work in curriculum development um, in terms of think tanks, in terms of policy. How do we teach college students, you know, math and science, social science? That's really important to me because, one, my own journey reflects that. I I try to figure out, like, what do I want to learn? What do I want to do? And I've had different engagement with the education system. I went to a public high school. I went to a parochial Catholic elementary school. I went to a trade school for um, uh, cosmetology school. I went to a community college, and I also went to a university. So there, there are so many different touch points that informs how education systems work. Uh, you know, I, I'm uh, my my sibling is an educator, working in, in restorative justice in schools. Both my parents are educators. Many people in my family are educators. So I do have a lot of reference points. But some of the things when it comes to educational justice and what it means to have justice in the education system are really maybe uniquely something that I want to fully engage with. So, you know, I do want to study human resource management in the public sector to look at how we maybe hire or, like, look for professors, what professors are not included in conversations, what it looks like also to study education as a social science and what diversity and equity looks like in terms of the student body on college campuses. Those things, those issues are really important to me, and I think, you know, we're just kind of, like, scratching the surface of those things. And what I mean by that is, the, you know, there have been plenty of, of conversations around affirmative action or other, other tools of equity in, in higher education. Um, but those conversations have tended to be limited. You know, we want to extend 
aspects of affirmative action to also include socioeconomic justice. It's not just a one a one solution problem. This this really needs to become we need more policies to be able to create systems of justice in education and particularly higher education. American higher education is is a unique system that is both rich and diverse in terms of the, the ideology and the idea of the practice of higher education in this country looks like no other country in the world where we get to have liberal education be the center. I get to study things like poetry and science at the same time, and I can engage myself with, you know, sociology and yoga at the same time. Like, those things don't really exist broadly around the world. Um, we do have a unique higher education system, but there's a lot of inequity that's a part of it. And I've experienced that inequity myself. I've understood how difficult it is to navigate financial aid, getting to and from school, balancing work with school as an adult. So I've seen firsthand some of the, the, the cracks in the system that, that need addressing. Um, that you want to address them. I think that's where I'm most passionate um, because for me that that's, I don't, I want the future of our country and I want the future of our world and the future students that, that engage with higher education to find value in it. I think there's a lot of conversation post-pandemic, even during the pandemic, we started to question the value of an American higher education. And that's terrifying to me. There, there are obviously debates about it, but I do not want an entire generation not seeking higher education because they don't see value in it. Um, because there is a lot of value in a higher education, in, in college, there just is. And it's not necessarily always one thing or the other. It's not just the education you receive in terms of its academic um, Nature, it's also the engagement with other people. It's also living on your own and getting uh, your first piece of independence. And that can look like a lot of different things. Again, I went to a trade school. Higher education is not just college. It's also professional schools. There's so many variations of what higher education can look like in the future um, that we actually need to explore them because you know, the system as it runs currently is rife with problems. Um, that need that truly need to be assessed and looked at by um, people like educators, people who want to work in education policy, and educators need to work together instead of being fractured and blaming each other for the problems in education. Um, that is not a conversation I'm willing to like, you know, super engage with. It's like whose fault is it that like education? Is, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of answers to that question, but educators in and of themselves are not my answer. <laughs> you know, educators really are trying to do the very best with as little resources as humanly given to them to be able to spark the fire within students. And I think we need to support them. I think that we need to really value what they bring to the education system instead of, you know, trying to find someone to blame. I don't think that's going to really help our students in this country. It's just not. I, th I think like what you just shared for education could be applied, like plop it in any industry, right? <laughs> and like we could just say almost the same well, thing across the board. Yeah, 
and, and, and that's where the, the uniqueness and uniqueness of the of systems kind of come in, right? Like, I, I don't think these are just unique problems to education. I think many industries have this, this, this kind of reckoning that needs to happen um, with how we approach things in systems. And I am a big systems guy. I'm a, I'm a sociologist first, probably, like a sociology student in my mind, probably first. Um, I always think about some of the ways that systems really fail people and then how people can also alter systems to work for them. Um, you know, a lot of organizing in the labor sector and like what happening you know, in, in terms of work, we're starting to see that the first real kind of pushback over major corporations. You know, what we're seeing at Amazon, what we're seeing at Starbucks, and I used to work for Starbucks. Um, so like, there's an idea that, they, that, that, you know, people do want to feel like they contribute something at work and aren't just there to, to be used by employers. And I think that's where the, the, the revolution, this, this kind of reckoning and, and, and idea of like what work will look like in the future isn't about people, you know, being fed up with having to work. I don't think that's even a real thing. I think it's about how am I going to contribute here? And how am I, are you going to value my contribution here? Um, I spend a lot of time in this place <laughs> uh, amongst these people doing these things. Like I want to feel like that is of value to me and of value to you. And, and when those two things work, it's really good. It, I think people really enjoy and are really driven by what they do at work. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's where we're heading more to versus away from. How do you hold all those thoughts at one time? Right. I, I, no, like seriously, like, I mean, I have my no, own thoughts about it, but like when, when you're looking at something that is as broad as inequities, right, mm -hmm. you are, you, you pull one thread and then everything starts unraveling. Like, how do you actually, right. I feel like part of it is like people just are so overwhelmed with the idea that they almost back away from it. So how does one actually learn to hold all of that together? Um, I think it takes, um, organizations being courageous to, to understand that there is no, there really is very little certainty, right, when it comes to organizations. I think startups get that a lot more maybe than, like, established corporations. They get that they're, they're, they're kind of working towards something and things are going to happen. <laughs> there are things that are not going to work. Um, and that kind of entrepreneurial startup, like, idea or kind of framework is something that I think established corporations or organizations of really behemoth kind of places really lose sight of as they get bigger and bigger, as they grow more and more. Um, and I think, and this is just maybe a bold statement, but I think that really is going to take leadership within organizations to, in terms of HR, also, you know, helping managers really and leaders really truly engage with team members to really truly see what's not working and what's working. And that involves actually listening to team members. It doesn't mean just using data because data can be really misleading sometimes when it comes to HR processes. Like it, it, you may think it's X, but it's really Y. And you know, as a, again, a student of sociology, a lot of that will tell you like, you may think it's this, but trust me, if you ask the right questions, 
it's actually lying. Um, and I think that involves courage because there's a lot at stake when you when you make mistakes in corporations that that don't bear outcome, you know, bore outcome, you know, that that lead to success. Sometimes you're going you're going to have to pivot in ways that like are super uncomfortable. Um, you know, example being like maybe Netflix, the idea that like, and this may be specific to Netflix and the idea that like that's a creative industry. So things like autonomy or like maybe not necessarily having set vacation time periods may work in that industry that may not work in healthcare, right? But that's going to be universally something that can work. But it is going to take the courage of leaders to say, what can we drop that isn't working here? And let's try to figure out what does. But we're, in order to get to that place, we may really have to search from inside out versus like, you know, consulting firms from the outside in. But that's, you know, consulting firms can look different. There are some consulting firms that I've worked with that really truly do the inside out work, that truly know exactly how to, to, to help organizations do the work that they've always wanted to do and be creative in doing it. And then there's some that do a lot of, you know, outside data in. And, and, and the, those partnerships that, that focus on inside out work really truly get to that, to that place much faster than, you know, just, you know, giving some personality tests. <laughs> um, uh, you know, we want to kind of reach deeper than that. Yeah, it's definitely not a, there's no surface level solutions, that's for sure. Right, oh, for sure. If I, if there, that could be a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> you can find it on my website now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a t-shirt. Uh, right, because it's super complicated. And now it's only going to, I, I, I can't imagine it getting super simple now. Like, yeah. yeah. You know, when, um, when I kind of introduced you, you said that, you know, as a LGBTQ campaign organizer, you witnessed the power of community. Mm-hmm. I'd love for you to share. Yeah like examples of how that is? For me, I, I would say definitely that I'll go back to my college students because they're, like, they're awesome. Um, I think when you, when you start a campaign, generally it's, it's a game of, of connections. It's like, who can I talk to? We'll get, you turn these five people into 10 people, into 50 people, into 100 people. Um, for me, the power of community is watching students who never talk to each other, <laughs> who barely even know each other, um, start to become closer and engage with each other, not just as you know, fellow students, but also as community members, seeing themselves as like, wait, we're part of this actual community. I think for some college students, that seems very woo-woo and you know, very like, you know, third level, like, but for, for a lot of students, the work of working towards a goal together in the sense that, like, something that matters to both of them or to all of them or to 20 of them, that's when you see the power of community. And in community organizing, probably there's no greater experience I've had than, like, co-facilitating that group, watching, again, people who didn't even know each other who walked into a room not knowing what they were walking into, not understanding what, how we would guide these conversations, become family, become people who had each other's back, who encouraged each other's like, goals and, and successes. Again, not knowing each other a month before, 
saying, wow, I'm so happy you got that promotion. That makes me feel really good. Like, I, I'm so excited to see you become a parent. I'm, this is so awesome that, like, your mom's doing well. For me, those are the kind of, like, human things that really, really drive the work that I want to continue to do and the work I've done is, is that kind of bonding that happens between people that is so unexpected that it kind of lights both, both of, you know, all of them up in a way that like, oh, wait, I didn't know that I could like get along with people like this. I didn't know, you know, if we, if we were walking by each other on the street, I probably wouldn't give you a second look, but now we're family. Now we're, you know, it, it, brothers, like in that sense that like we really truly bonded in a way that was unforeseen and that is delightful and joyous because like, now I can't imagine you not in my life. That those kind of ideas are really where I've seen this individual and kind of group transformations. Um, and if I didn't see it with my own two eyes, you know, it's really easy to be cynical and say that that's, that doesn't happen in real life, especially in the dawn and the age of social media. Yeah, that doesn't happen in real life. You know, one of the things that I, I personally, like, I'm, I'm not a gamer, and this can start a whole other conversation. Gaming communities, um, you know, didn't make much sense to me. And in in, like, I've had friends who are gamers, and kind of sharing their stories of how they can be friends with people virtually, which is you know really foreign to me, which is not an idea that I'm used to, and how successful that can be means that anything can be anything. Really, at the end of the day, we can find connection in a million ways. We just have to be invested in the idea that it's possible. And we also have to be committed to the idea that, like, hey, I, I, I don't have to just do things the way I, I'm used to. I can reach out to my community and get support and, and, and be able to engage in support in ways that I didn't think were possible. And listen, sometimes it doesn't work, and that's okay, too. But a lot of times you'll find if you're fully engaged, another person's fully engaged, it does. It, it can work um, in ways that are super meaningful. I mean, there's nothing more meaningful than that than people who, again, lived maybe in the same town but never saw each other or knew each other, you know, bring, borrow or make food for each other. That's huge to me. Um, and I think that's, that's the kind of courage that I want to see in the world, the kind of, like, love, if you want to put position justice with, like, what love looks like in public, right? Like, very Martin Luther King, but, like, I love that idea, is that things in public can look intimate as they do in, in homes. The idea that those intimacies don't exist in public is just a, a, a failure of imagination, or, like, where the imagination can really, truly open up and say, like, this is possible. This is possible. And, like, I think the pandemic also helped with that. I think people, probably neighbors who never spoke to each other, you know, had to do a lot of work to be able to support each other in ways that they probably never fathomed before meeting each other in a very specific way. Um, and I think part of, you know, 
human crises does bring us together. That is what we're here for, right? If we're, if we're here for nothing else, it's like that Rumi quote where, like, we're all just walking each other home. I think that's really the most true thing about human, human beings being here with each other. We, we don't like saying we need each other because it implies something about us. But we do because there's nothing else more profound than feeling connected to each other, right? Um, or at least in my mind, that's, that's kind of how I see it. No, I absolutely agree with you. I think for me, like ever since becoming a mother, and then I, I'm like in the suburbs outside of Boston, and oh. <laughs> yeah, it's like a whole <laughs> thing. But the idea of like it takes a village, <laughs> and I'm blessed to be in this amazing neighborhood where like we refer to each other as like the village, like the village caught you, you know, like that's you know, awesome. if we're like running late to the bus stop or something like that, or if someone's uh-huh. um you know, experiencing something bad at home or whatever personally, then we're there. Like, it's just, it's available. I really truly do think that, like, it's available. Um, You you have to be open to it. You have to have the courage, like you said, the courage for the uncertainty of it not working. But if you're open to it, then you'll find a way. Right. Yeah. And, and also, like, not being defeated if it doesn't work, too. Like, sometimes that's, that's part of life that happens. Um, but, but you know, you know, he a big fan of Brene Brown, really. So she, I think it shows up in a lot of my work. Um, that's a really big, a big deal. I think, you know, until I started to look at the larger work of some so, other social workers, of people that I worked with that were social workers or um, therapists, um, there's a lot of unlearning that happens as you navigate through community. There's a lot of preconceptions we have about what it is to need someone, you know, need someone's help, what it is to ask for help, what it is to, like, you know, feel helpless. There's a lot of stuff that comes behind and around those feelings. And I think, often I find myself surprised when I, when I'm brave enough to be like, Oh, like I really need help. I'm struggling right now. Um, I, you know, people want to support each other, want to like be there to catch each other. Um, because we also would hope, I think on some level that those things get returned, not that we're doing them so that they do, but rather like, I think we all want to feel like we're contributing to other people's lives. Um, in a, in a really, like, really personal and intimate way. Um, whether or not we get, we get through to that point and work through some of the messaging that's happened around that kind of, you know, position of needing help or what it means, uh, I think when we get through and kind of work, we find much more richness and joy and being alive when when we get there. <laughs> hmm Yeah, like, um, it's, it's interesting because, like, I feel like, ev- like, a lot of people, like, or everyone really has their own, like, they, they learn their lessons through different parts of their lives, and mm. so much of mine have come through motherhood, so, like, my experience of, like, being a mother and, like, seeing how independence is so valued in children when, like, mm. psychologically, it's just not actually possible, right, for a, a one-year-old mm-hmm. to be independent. Um, but that <laughs> value being so 
so permeated into our culture in this country, right? Like Independence Day mm-hmm. and like being the one, you know, whatever it, it, all of those things, it, it is a huge unlearning if we allow it to be, to, to start leaning on people as when we get older, when, when that independence has been ingrained in us and we realize that it actually doesn't serve us because, and, and this is, you know, I'm not a religious person really, but like, I think of people like, like praying for help or like, even like when you just hope and wish for something, it's going to come in the form of a person. Like it's going to be like, someone's going to, you know, it could be the mail person delivering a package for you or whatever it is. Right. It's going to come in the form of a person. Like maybe sometimes it's an animal and all of that, but, um, but chances are people are involved in that. And, um, and again, like not, I'm not a religious person, but I do believe that like there is, there is a greater, a greater, a greaterness to this life. And, Right. And that is what you say, like you said, that Rumi quote, like, we're all just walking each other home. Like, the, to be human is, it's this deep unlearning and reconnecting and, like, coming together and uh, on a individual level, but then also, like, on a humanity level, too. I feel like that's where we're at right now. Yeah. Um, I, you know, for me, growing up, you know, I grew up with a really large family. Um, injury city who all lived in the same house, same townhouse, like all lived together. Um, and their, their survival and, and kind of like place in the world was through each other. There, there was, it wasn't an option not to, I don't think. Um, so, you know, it's not, my, my life experience doesn't tell me it's weird to ask for help or you know, be able to be really clear about needing it. Um, so my life experience does kind of, like, bring that to the forefront. When I started to live on my own, which is really funny, like, that became really hard for me. It became hard outside of my family to then ask for help because you're not my fa- you know, you're not the person who I'm supposed to ask for help. Um, and then when I had roommates, you know, that felt really good. I could be like, hey, like, can you make sure you lock the door? Can you make sure you take my laundry out of the dryer? Like, those things, you know, simple innocuous things like that felt better to me because it mirrored, again, my ability to, like, not have to do and carry everything on my own Um, because sometimes that's really, really, you know, difficult. And, I, you know, I I understand that for some people that's also not an option. They, they, you know, they bear a lot. Um, And you know, that becomes really untenable. It's really hard to hold all of that. Um, and I can only imagine, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a parent, but I am a child, right? I'm someone's child. And there's a lot of reverence as, you know, children get older uh, about their parents seeing them as human beings, as uh, people who, you know, are flawed and being able to realign what your, who your parents are as you grow older, how much you eerily become like them (laughs) in every way humanly possible in terms of how you move your hands, how you speak, what makes you angry or sad, or what makes you happy and elated. Like all those things when, uh, you know, that we see and recognize in each other, Again, that's also a journey that also when you see it in front of you, when you witness it and bear witness to it, it really becomes solidified. Oh, I'm, these are 
these are the people who receive. This is where I'm like the, it orients you to a place of like, oh, this is this is the origin here. Um, and I think that's that's really important because like with children that that I think, you know, I always you know tell parents I'm not ever going to give you advice as a parent, but I will tell you what it's like to be someone's child. I will tell you what it felt like to navigate middle school or navigate high school as a person from from what it was like to be someone's child and to be a child in the world trying to make sense of it. So like if you don't hear what I have to say as parenting advice, I don't want you to hear it as parenting advice. I want you to hear what your child may be internally going through that you haven't considered. Um, and that's what I want to leave you with versus like trying to give you parenting advice because I haven't, there's no place in the world where I would, I would be audacious enough to give parents parenting advice, but I will, I will position myself as someone's child and like hopefully be able to have parents understand their children a bit more, even, even when they might not agree or understand fully. Again, I think people are not puzzles. Like, Please try not to, I, I don't want to be figured out, right? Like, all a child ever wants from their parent is to know that they're safe and loved somewhere. Like, at the end of the day, they belong with you. Not, I'm not here to be figured out. Like, I, I, I'm going to have to do actually that work on my own. Um, I just want to feel present with you and feel like I matter here. That's, I think, the only thing in terms of, like, you know, what it's like to also have conversations with parents when it comes to advocacy around LGBTQ issues. I think a lot of parents have difficulty, not even difficulty, just it's it's a lot of journeying through who they saw their child being and who they anticipated their child to be versus who their child is. And can we get to a place where you acknowledge who your child is and just be there to support your human being, the, the human being you created to like be worthy of the unconditional love that when you held them, that you promised, just carry out that promise. And, and that's all that really parents need to do. I love that. I, I feel like we could, what you just shared, the, I don't know how, maybe the past five minutes, we could probably <laughs> talk like three more hours because there's so many thoughts. Um, and yeah, it's a lot. Uh, yeah, like it's, it is it's interesting how um well you know i just shared like when you ask for like you know like when you ask for things right like prayers or whatever it is like when you hope for things and then you're and then it comes in the form of a person like like you were my person last week you you came and you're like you're oh, here and you're sharing and just likewise too right um you know i had never and if I, I guess in my own room, in my own, like, mind, I have these conversations with myself all the time. People think I'm weird because I talk to myself a lot, but I don't think I'm weird. I just think, like, I enjoy my own presence, um, <laughs> which may be a little weird and sound egotistical, but at the same time, like, I do really have full on conversations with myself um, because I'm an idea, I'm, a, I'm a, a pretty, you know, thought driven person and emotion driven person and I want to kind of work out what I'm thinking and feeling out loud a lot um and so when you presented me with the opportunity to be on your podcast I was like 
the first, my first impulse, I'm going to tell you, is no, because there's a part of me that I think it struggles with making my ideas public because I don't, there's a, a small part of me that doesn't think I'm original or creative enough to like have them. Um, but in working through, I was like, no, I'm going to say yes, and I'm going to do it because this is part of the process of like, well, you want your ideas to be public at some point. You want to work in public policy. You want to work in education. Like you're going to have to make your ideas public at some point. Um, so that you're going to have to respond courageously and briefly and say yes. <laughs> and also, you know, lead with my heart in the way that like I'm, I'm answering calls, but in a, in, in a very real way, in a very profound way, you were my person last week and, and able to make, to kind of crack myself open a little bit and expand what, what goes on in here in my head out loud. Hmm. <laughs> Thank you. <That's> awesome. <laughs> Um, do you have any parting thoughts with the guests of, until until next time we chat? Um, uh, no, I mean I think I think as long as people kind of stay committed to to kind of having some compassion with each other, I think especially post pandemic, I can't imagine you know, and I sometimes struggle with this. Trust me, catch me on a bad day where I've had zero coffee. I've been running around and I had three exams. Yeah, you're going to, you may not get that same exact person here, but in the core of like who I am, I always try to remind myself on some level to, to have, to try and be more compassionate and hold, and hold a bit more than I did maybe before. Um, because people are really going through it. You know, I was really, I'm sitting in a room. I had breakfast. I had coffee. Like, that isn't a small thing. That's not a small thing. And to have gratitude for those things and being and and just to be here in general in a way that feels good to me is in and of itself enough. Like and and for for me that is okay. I want other people to have that same sense of grounding and that same sense of like belonging and the same sense of compassion because I think we really do have to move beyond the vitriol. We have to move beyond hating each other. Because <laughs> even though there are worse things than hate, trust me, eh, you know, apathy and indifference are way worse. And and I think, or my hope for what life looks like beyond this is 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 the erosion of indifference, the erosion of apathy, and and the kind of presence of compassion with each other in really difficult conversations. And and it's okay not to get things right. It's okay not to be perfect, especially in really difficult conversations. There's nothing wrong with saying, "Hey, I like really, I really messed up there. Like I was not I was not at my best. Like it, I really missed the mark here," because people you know, can, can forgive if, you know, you're crazy enough to apologize and kind of stand where you are, they, you know, especially people who are close to you. Um, not that they have to forgive, but, like, being more open to that forgiveness by saying, like, wow, like, I, I'm, I'm, this didn't work out the way I thought it would, and I, I, I messed up here. Um, it's okay to, to mess up, too. You're, it's, I haven't gotten everything right 
in all my political conversations in the world. Um, so it's okay to like be e uh, not easy with yourself in the sense of like, oh, I'm not trying, but like the idea like to, to have a little ease with the learning process of having difficult conversations because it, it, it takes a lot of practice <laughs> to get better and better at, at the engagement necessary, especially for really difficult poli what political things, because political things are personal too. People like to say it's not personal. It's like, no, like people's lived lives, lived lives are on the other end of policies. Like my life was shaped by policy, right? Um, again, not having the, the legal contract of marriage until I was 30, shaped my thoughts about marriage and fatherhood and like what those things would look like for me in my developmental years, right? That shifts completely and it's not super easy to unlearn those things and think it possible to be a father and possible to marry now at 30, you know, I'm almost 40 years old. Um, it's taking a lot for me to kind of walk through and re-navigate the possibility of those things now in my own life. Um, and it's taken me a lot to get there. Um, because, you know, the earlier parts of my life, those were not possible. They were not possibilities. So when people tell me, oh, like, get over here, you should just be dead. Oh, get over here, you should just get married. Like, that sounds really great. But um, unfortunately, my life was shaped. By, by the idea of politics. You know, my, my life was made central to politics. I didn't get to opt out of the conversation. I had, I had to engage with it because it, it was my life on the other end of it. Um, so things that are also political are deeply personal for people, and, and that's where I wish the compassion would kind of lie, is remembering that people's lives are on the other end of politics to you. Wow. I really love that. I hadn't thought of it that way to like, cause it's like, oh, the switch is turned on, like marriage is leaked, you know, right. all of a sudden everyone's going right. to like get married and, um, and it's not the same, but I think about how, like th that opportunity, right? I think about how like my parents are immigrants and they came to this country and sure there's opportunity around, but their experiences have not enabled them to have the same experiences that I have, who was born into that opportunity. Right. Um, and it just it made me think of that. And I think that it's, it's not the same, um, but it's my way of like empathizing right. with that. Right. And, and that's a, a huge thing. Thank you for sharing that with me too, because like, it's true. Like I, you know, I'm, a, I'm second generation born here. My parents and I were born in the United States. Um, my grandparents are from Puerto Rico. Um, in terms of opportunity and what that looks like and how that shapes, I mean, the ideas about America, even though you know Puerto Rico is I'm a multi-United States, even being a, a part of the United States doesn't always look like being a part of the United States, and that. And opportunities that my parents may have had, you know, again, both my parents are college educated. They are both teachers. Um, same thing with my sibling. Like, we all had immense opportunities um, that we took part of, that we've rejected, that we've re retooled, because all of our experiences are so different in terms of how we were raised in, you know, through our generational cultures and how that works. Um, 
and that shapes a lot of what people believe, how people believe they operate in the world and believe that they like are who they are. Um, like I wish my Spanish was better. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things that like, you know, as I grow older that I feel more connected to in terms of my life and in terms of my culture and in terms of where I came from in ways that I didn't necessarily fully see in the same way when I was younger. Um, and, you know, you know, systems operate like that. Like, like, they have you forget parts and remember parts um, in different in different times because that's it's essential to the part of growth, but also it's kind of sometimes designed that way. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, certain, you know, aspects of, again, educational justice will have you forget parts of where you're from, let you take on new parts like individualism and, like, uh, you know, because it benefits when someone fires you because you did this or that or when you're not allowed in this space because of this or that and have you believe that that's because you're the problem, not the system being the problem or how that system operates being the problem. It's kind of advantageous that we forget some things and remember some things. Um, so, you know, humanizing those things also is a really big part of that too. Love it. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. So appreciative of you. And I'm just so glad that our paths crossed. And I'm already imagining part two. So, um, Oh, that'd be awesome. (laughs) So I don't, I know that you were, you said you aren't really active on social media. If let's just say someone were interested in getting in contact with you, is there a way that someone can find you somewhere? Um, the only social media I actually have is Instagram. I know that's terrible. Or, I, I mean, I do have a Facebook. I haven't checked Facebook in, like, I don't even know how many years. Probably, like, uh, seven or eight. Um, so on Instagram, um, I'm uh, Beauty Theory, although Beauty Theory was taken, so I have a strange spelling of it. It's B-E-A-U-T-E dot and then Theory, T-H-E-R-Y. Um, Although I'm not, I'm, I can't promise engagement. I'm really like the worst when it when I say I'm, I'm. This is where the older millennial in me comes out. I'm absolutely terrible with social media. However, I think this conversation and this like engagement has inspired me to maybe figure out other forms of social media that people can find me. I'm granted, I'm I'm still a student and still learning, and I think that's a part of like what socials do I create as a student? What I mean, what what does that even look like? Um, is that even possible? Um, in ways that I can share my ideas. So maybe this is like a starting point for for social media that may look like uh, uh, what is that a uh, web page or uh, you know website of any kind? Oh my god, I'm totally embarrassing myself. So yeah, <laughs> that some social media presence. There you go. Wonderful. Well, thank you again, Rafaya. Uh, thank you so much, Lisa. Please. Enjoy the rest of your day, and I'm so, so grateful for the really rich conversation that we've had. Thank you for tuning in today. Living an inspired life is a worthy endeavor. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Be sure to subscribe in your preferred podcast player for future real conversations. And if any part of this episode made you think of a friend, let them know that they aren't alone in their journey and share all the things with them. If you'd like to stay in touch, hop on over to lisaforreal.com and sign up for my daily blogs. 
or find me on Instagram at Reclaiming Motherhood. See you next time.